This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley and I'm back from my not holiday. I was working on the Times and Sunday Times Cheltenham Literature Festival at sea. Uh, lots of you who listen to the podcast, or at least some people who listen to the podcast, came out to me to say that they did uh, when I was on the uh, the QM2 crossing the Atlantic. Uh, so welcome along. Uh, right, coming up on today's episode then, our big thing today, he appeared before the House of Lords, he took on Liz Truss, he took on David Beckham. I asked comedian Joe Lysett, about this being the year he went political. Uh, that's coming up in just a moment. Before that, on the radio show today, I spoke to uh, Andy Street, the mayor of the West Midlands, and asked him whether he regretted uh, backing Liz Truss. How much of the cost of living crisis, the, the, the problems with affordability, the state of the nation's finances, how much of that do you put down to the, the, the Liz Truss premiership, which, which you backed in the summer? Uh, actually a very small amount. If you look at what's driving inflation, uh, just over 10% at the moment, it looks about about half of it is energy. And we know the source of the energy issue that was there before Liz Trust, that is there after Liz Trust. So actually you cannot say that that big piece of it is uh, the way that the government has dealt with it. Actually, if anything, the way that Liz Trust's government dealt with it in terms of putting the, uh, the actions in to help uh, customers with their energy bills has reduced the headline number. That is absolutely clear. Uh, the issue then is whether or not we see that uh, those high-level high inflation numbers coming down and that therefore the pay awards that are being proposed are more reasonable when we get to next spring. Do you regret backing Liz Truss to be Prime Minister? No, I don't, Matt. I get, I ask, get asked that question many times. I regret how it all worked out. I regret how she conducted herself. I regret the uh, the, um, and, I was, and I spoke out about this. I regret the elements of the mini budget. But what she said in the summer about what was needed, there was, and many people agree on this, actually, there was a lot of wisdom in that. The problem was it was completely ineffectively delivered. But then, but she did what she said she was going to do, and it was a disaster. No, that's to permit me to, I would very, very rarely accuse you of this because you're a sophisticated man, that's too simplistic. Because what actually she said she was going to do was find ways in which the economy would grow faster and actually we would become much more efficient when she was talking about all the things on the supply side of the economy. What we ended up with was exactly the opposite because of the way she went about it. And that's where the criticism, quite rightly, uh, fell. But in the summer, Rishi Sunak said, Liz Truss's plans were an economic fantasy. You can't borrow to cut taxes. You'll crash the economy. And that's exactly what happened. And you still backed her. No one believed when we were talking about the Conservative Party leadership race in the uh, middle of the summer that we were going to go for a budget that would uh, not even be consulted with the Office of Budget Responsibility, would have spooked the markets as it did. As it did. And what we see very clearly in the very wise stewardship of Jeremy Hunt is if you keep the markets on board, mm. that does not happen. So actually, I still believe that it was the how it was done, not what was trying to be done, uh, that was the, uh, the the error that we now see so clearly. That was the Mayor of the West Midlands, Andy Street. And uh, what he had to say about strikes came up with today's columnists. The Columnists on Times Radio. 
Yes, and every Monday, of course, we always speak to Libby Rachel. We haven't got a Rachel though. We have got a Libby though. Morning, Libby Purvis. Morning. Nice to have you with us. And Jenny Russell. Morning, Jenny. Morning, Matt. Oh, you sound you sound as croaky as me this morning, Jenny. Um yeah, it's winter. I know it's, there's a lot of it about. There's a lot of it about. Uh now then, um earlier on I was speaking to Andy Street, uh, Mayor of the West Midlands. He was saying that, you know, everyone needs to get back around the, the negotiating table, but then says it's not really ministers job to do it. So many people getting in touch uh, cross about it. Somebody on the text says, of course the government uh, has to get involved in negotiations. They have the power to allocate capital to public services fairly. Washing their hands of responsibility won't wash when they shamelessly take no responsibility for the last 12 years. And I say that as a lifelong Tory voter. So someone called Swervy on the text. Who's in the wrong here? Who's to blame, Libby? I think they should get back round the table. They should absolutely do that. I mean, I was writing today about this rather casual way in which the education secretary said, you know, so grateful to the army. Well, they're just our backup. You know, we've got a backup. You know, but strikes are not natural disasters. You know, they are mismanagement. They are national mismanagement over years. And government does have to be seen to be out there and talking directly both to the strikers and to the privatised employers uh, involved. You know, something has to be done. Um, uh, you were talking about the cold earlier, and I just had to get out. I was uh, de-icing the car at seven o'clock this morning. I had to get out for a medical appointment. And the whole of the small town near me, there were people who could hardly walk on the pavement saying, ambulance won't come, you know, the ambulance won't come. Be really careful. Hold on to the wall. Ambulance won't come. It's slippery. And you, we've got that's before the strike even really begins. It is the, 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 the national situation is is in a crisis. And for ministers to pretend this is all the responsibility of somebody else, um, who should who should be talking to strikers? It, it's not right. It, it's not. It, it is their responsibility. Uh, what do you think, Jenny? Well, this doesn't make for, for good radio, but I agree with Libby. <laughs> <laughs> You're allowed to agree. Um, and, and I think the, the problem for the government is that most of the nation does too. And there's no question that the national health service is a government responsibility, and so are the functioning of the railways. The reason why we subsidise them by 16 billion during COVID was because it was recognised that they're an essential national service. And so, of course, the government is responsible for both the funding and the operation of the NHS and railways. And the government, the, the public recognised that. And I don't think that the government's line that, oh, this has nothing to do with us, is, is, is going to hold for a moment. I think they're going to become increasingly unpopular. I mean, I'm old enough to remember the winter of discontent when I was young. And... That is, of course, what brought down the Labour government. And the Tory government is in a fool's world if it imagines that people think this isn't their responsibility. We know that they are preventing the RMT reaching a deal with um, the rail employers. And we know that they're responsible for the real terms call in, in hospital staff pay. And I suppose it's one of these things where, you know, ideally we wouldn't be starting from here, but we are where we are. And both, you know, we've also got the Labour Party saying, well, they wouldn't uh, put a figure on uh, what they would give the uh, the nurses were they in this um, situation. So is it, it's a terrible situation we're in, Libby, but what's the way out of it? I think uh, very, you know, George or better than war, war, as Churchill said, you know, they, they've got to talk about, they've got to talk to the nurses. Almost certainly this 19% claim would be rolled back. You know, they, they would they would go back from that. They, they would understand that. But if you're just not having, if you've got this sense of there's no conversation, you know, there's no compromise, you know, you'll, you'll take what you're given. Uh, th this is just not an attitude which is going to work in a democratic country. And as I say this morning, because I was writing about the, the army and being careful about using mm -hmm. soldiers as lumps of putty to shove in the cracks after 10 years of austerity and Brexit and all the rest of it. Um, you, you can't go on doing that. And government just seems altogether too casual about this. Um, even the Prime Minister, who I have quite a lot of time and respect for, uh, I, I do actually think that, that some there has to be a change here. They have to take a grip somewhat, somehow or other. And as for this new law, the proposed law about minimum service, just have a little look at what they're proposing and have a little look at what lawyers are saying about about it. That's not going to fly. <laughs> I think the key issue here is that the fact is that people don't want to do nursing at current rates of pay and it's not surprising because the figures show that average pay for, in the public sector has gone up by 5% since 2010 and in the 
um, in, in the private sector. And in the public sector, it's down by 6%. We've already got a nursing vacancy rate of 12%. Health service staff are voting with their feet. They are walking out of jobs which aren't worth doing. You cannot just go and squeezing the nursing profession and all the other health workers and just saying, suck it up, because they won't. We won't have a functioning health service unless you pay people more. It's a simple matter of the market. So the government is going to have to compromise on this. I wish they'd do it sooner rather than later. I could imagine, for instance, a pay settlement of, of 11% or 12%, which just keeps up with inflation, but doesn't squeeze the nurses and the other health service staff any further. It, it was interesting that last uh, uh, over the weekend, the nurses suddenly said the, the nursing union, uh, to be clear, that the inflation plus was it five percent that they were looking for suddenly wasn't. Uh, they were willing to move on that. Um, but I suppose that most people in the take, although taking your point, Jenny, most people in the public in the private sector aren't getting pay rises that match inflation eleven uh, odd percent. And so I suppose, but they haven't. But they haven't been falling so far behind yeah. that. That's the critical issue, that you can't say to the public sector, we want you to reform, we want you to make efficiencies, we want you to work harder, and we want to do, do it for less money than people are now getting in the private sector. It's just not going to work. People will not do the jobs. It's interesting, Libby, uh, Roy's just messaging, would somebody make it clear that as the Times have reported, to give all the public sector an inflation-based pay rise, it costs £19 billion and would result in a 3 to 4p rise in income tax. If people equate wage rises, the cost to them, they would no doubt review their support for it. And that's the problem, isn't it? They, everyone can make the case for we undervalue nurses, uh, paramedics do a lot of hard work and should probably be paid more. But it, it, this is a lot of money, which ultimately would mean putting up taxes again, creating a spiral. I want to pay more tax. Uh, there are quite a lot of people in this country who should pay more tax, Um you know, I am among them. A lot of people who earn even sort of less than I do are among them. Tax rises have to happen. But I suppose they are happening, aren't they? But at, that, at the moment, they're happening only to cover the... You know, everyone is going to be worse off as a result of uh, what um, Jeremy Hunt announced well, a few weeks ago. That is already happening. But that's only going to... That's the, still keeping us at the baseline. Yeah. Well, I think and, and... Go on, Libby. No, I was just going to say, I'd rather hear Jenny, actually. She's been <laughs> on, rather Jenny. good this morning. <laughs> on, Jenny. I'm enjoying her. Well, well, well I, think, I think the estimate for what it would cost us in, pay, in tax rises across the country is an average of something like £400 per taxpayer, and that would be skewed to the wealthier taxpayers. So, in fact, you're not talking about an immense amount if you, if you compare it to everything that we've had to pour into the economy over the past few years. Let's not go into £43 billion on test and trace, mm. shall we? And the point is, if you don't have rail services that work, if you don't have an NHS that works, then you don't get the rest of us at work. I mean, if we can't have our operations, if if we can't be seen when our cancer treatment is needed, then we can't go to work. So the whole of the rest of the economy suffers, not to mention the fear that people feel when they know that a health service isn't available to them. So this is political choice, and the government at the moment is choosing to play hardball, but I can't see it ending any other any in any other way than badly for them people won't forgive them if we're going to have months of disruption with the government partially surrendering at the end which they will have to do but it's all right though because steve barclay the health secretary is moving into an open plan office so that's going to sort it all out apparently um it's in the story of the times today he's moving to a uh so he can sit alongside nhs bosses and pop over for a chat is that a good idea libby I think so. Absolutely. Uh, yes. Uh, uh, you need to be close, close to it. And another little thing is it would just be nice if all ministers in all departments remained longer in their jobs. You know, we have got through so many, such a churn of ministers. It's extraordinary. And, and that doesn't help. It just means they never really quite know the job. It's a good point, actually, uh, uh, Jenny, that he, he does seem to be planning slightly for the long term because Matt Hancock's old office, the one with the, the famous portrait of the Queen on the wall, is going to be turned into a canteen. <laughs> well, I'm sure that would cheer the staff up. But I think They should call thing. it Hancock's <laughs> in honour of him, maybe. I think the less said about Matt Hancock, the better. <laughs> but, but I think it, it'll, it'll be good for Steve Barkley um, if he thinks he's going to be more in charge of the NHS by having... The, of the bosses around him, I think actually what's more likely to happen is that he'll be forced to recognise some of the reality of what's actually happening to the health service when he's sitting around with the people who are running it every day, pointing out the reality of inadequate social care and not enough ambulance drivers and not enough staff. 
Yeah, and it all. Yeah, it doesn't really matter where he's sitting. He's, he's not going to necessarily solve any of those. Bring in now uh, Paul Johnson, as we always do on a Monday, director at the Institute of Fiscal Studies. And Paul, a tiny glimmer of good news: the economy grew by 0.5 percent in October. Should we be getting out the? Um, I mean, it's not quite champagne. Maybe a bottle of prosecco. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> I don't think this is. Um... Uh, I don't think this is telling us anything that we weren't particularly expecting. I mean, the the, the month after the, um, the, the the Queen's death and the bank holidays and so on associated with that, um, I think every it was always going to you know, tick up a little bit. Um, but it's still the case that if you look at the three months between August and October, the economy um, you know, contracted a little bit. I mean, to the extent you can believe these numbers, which come out very, very quickly. I mean, they always get revised somewhat but i think you know the broader picture remains that um the economy's you know likely to be shrinking slightly over the next several months and irrespective actually of whether it slightly shrinks or slightly grows we're certainly all going to be getting worse off as our incomes go up less quickly than prices um is, is there any evidence that the i mean i suppose it's early days yet cuz it was only last month the the you know at some point we'll start working out with the obr over generous or uh, too pessimistic when it came uh, to growth. When will we start to to see that? And I suppose strikes, bad weather, that all that all hits the economy as well. Yeah, I mean we're going to have lots of things going on over the next couple of months, which are, as you say, strikes and um, today snow, which seems to have completely ground most things to a halt. Um, the uh, it's going it's to be a little while before we see that. I mean it's worth saying in terms of the OBR being too pessimistic. I mean they're a lot more optimistic than the Bank of England. I mean the uh, the Chancellor should be very grateful that he didn't have the Bank of England giving him his forecasts uh, last month. I mean they 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 really were much gloomier um, even than the OBR, and the OBR wasn't particularly. Um, optimistic. I mean, as ever, it's going to take uh, you know a little while. Um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll be some way through next year before we really know um, uh, what's going on over that period. Uh, you know, things might get better, of course. I mean, it remains the case that gas prices aren't doing quite as badly as we thought a few uh, a few months ago, and uh, I don't think there's anyone's expecting very high levels of unemployment in the way that we've had um, in the past. But uh, you know. The, today's figures, I wouldn't say um, oh, everything's going to be fine now, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, I just want to be, Libby, you were quite keen on the idea that, that we should all pay even more tax. Yeah. Lots of people absolutely. seem to agree with you. Um, uh, tax rises have to happen, says someone. I agree we need to pay more tax. Even my 84-year-old mother thinks you should pay more tax, says Andy. Libby, explain, explain why how you think that's possible. Because I, we have the most massive inequality in um in in uh, money and in in living and in work and in in opportunities and in just in daily life you know we you have to give constantly to food banks in any area you you live in just because you're so aware of how impossible life is for so many families right now um you know we we just uh, the, the the inequality is wider now than it has i think ever been in this country and it's one of the widest in developed Europe. And I just think we ought to face up to that. And the fact that, you know, from he who has, you know, he who has should give and he who has not should should have it given to him. You know, I'm deliberately sort of turning the Marxist thing around <laughs> uh, so that people don't shout at me for being a Marxist. But yeah, um, that, that, that it's, it's logical and it makes us happier. It makes us all happier. There is no fun being on a sort of weird <laughs> middle class affluent island you know with the waters rising around you and unhappiness and visible misery and deprivation and anger rising around you it's no fun it's good for all of us that tax should be higher for those who can pay more so paul how how much could we raise some people who could afford to pay more tax i suppose that's the sort of <laughs> thing i'm wondering because as somebody else has pointed out uh uh, I suspect the majority of the population is struggling with their cost of living would not be able to. That's Roy uh, says, uh, you know, Libby may be willing to pay more tax, but people struggling uh, wouldn't. As Paul Johnson suggested previously, those in the public sector should also take into consideration their pension provision, which is generally not available in the private sector. So actually it's a, a slightly separate point. But yeah, how many more people, how, ma how many people are comfortable enough to pay more tax, Paul? Well, if you look at what other countries do, I mean, and quite a lot of other countries in Western Europe do pay a lot more tax than we do. And I'm afraid the bad news is that they don't do that by getting lots more 
money off the people with the very highest levels of income. We've actually got relatively high levels of tax for at least some people um, on high incomes. What they broadly speaking do is get more money from people on average and somewhat above average uh, incomes, particularly uh, through much higher equivalents of the national insurance contribution um, system. And also, they generally have more coming from VAT. They tend to have at least some level of VAT on things like food, um, which we don't. Uh, and the issue is, I mean, even if you look at what the... So, so look at the people on the highest incomes, um, raising income tax. So government raised... Uh, you pulled down to £125,000, the point at which you start to pay the 45p income tax rate. That raises very little. I mean, maybe a billion uh, or so. You could raise that rate to 50%. That might raise you a couple of billion. Um, these are very, very small numbers in, 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 in the scheme of things. And remember, the top 1% already pay about 30% of income tax. Yeah. And we're already very, very reliant on the very, very highest income people. Now, there are things we should and could do to get more from capital gains tax, more from inheritance tax, and more from council tax for people in the in in the in the, in the biggest properties, and that gets you some uh, some of the way. But if you really want a substantial change to the scale and scope of the state, I'm afraid you really do need to be looking at people on forty, fifty thousand a year, not people on four hundred, five hundred thousand a year, because there just aren't enough of them, and they're already paying a very large amount of tax. And, and uh, just finally, Paul, on the question of strikes and pay rises, is it really true? Is Rishi Sunak, I think, was claiming over the weekend that if if all the the pay demands were met, it would cost every house was it every household a thousand pounds? No, not really. Um, I think um, <laughs> that, that that's. Uh, you know that's uh, that's eliding a whole load of things. It's ignoring the fact that you know half you know, five million households are in the public sector anyway. It's ignoring the fact that we're already increasing uh, pay somewhat um, in the public sector. It's ignoring the uh, tax those people would pay. So no, it's you. you can, I can see how you get that number, but it's not a terribly as ever in in these political senses. It's not a terribly um, useful number to be kicking around. You do surprise me, Paul Johnson. Thanks for that, Paul Johnson, director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies. Uh, crunch the numbers for so that we can get our heads running. Uh, just finally, Jenny, you wanted to talk about something that uh, J.K. Rowling is doing today. Yes, yeah, she's launched, she's funding herself a new charity for um, the victims of uh, sexual and male violence or se sexual and domestic violence um, in Scotland, and it's going to be for biological women only. And it's a reaction by J.K. Rowling to the fact that the self-ID movement in Scotland is allowing trans women into any rape shelters and any domestic violence um, help centres. And Rowling says, and I think she's absolutely right, that there's a time when women, biological women, need spaces that are separate from men. And it doesn't matter how those people identify. You have to have biological women being allowed to have a service that is only for them, so that you don't have women being traumatised by having people with male bodies in the same places where they're trying to find refuge. And I think it's a it's a very bold statement by her and she's funding it entirely herself. Libby, just briefly, your, your take on this? Uh, I absolutely agree. I mean, oh, the, the, Scottish idea, the Scottish idea of two weeks and a simple statement is not the same as the current law, which is two years living in the new sex and a serious diagnosis. Women need women just as men need men. Rowling is, as so often, right. Libby Purvis and Jenny Russell then. Of course, you can read them in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is Joe Lyson. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Yes, he's given evidence to the House of Lords. I think I tweeted, I've got a smelly bum bum. He took on David Beckham over human rights. If you end your relationship with Qatar, I'll donate this 10 grand of my own money, that's a grand for every million you're reportedly getting, to charities that support queer people in football. And he became an unlikely cheerleader for Liz Truss. Thank you so much for coming in. And whatever happens, do come back. Well, I was going to say, going for some reaction from our panel, because listening to that interview at the desk and seeming to applaud Joe Lycett. I'm delighted that Joe Lycett uh, joins me now. Morning, Joe. Good morning. I'm not sure I like being referred to as the big thing. (laughs) I think that's... that's I think it, that feels aggressive in some way, Matt. It's it's. I think to be honest, it's more of a reference to me after spending a week on a on a cruise. Um, I've got yeah, I'm definitely bigger. I'm definitely bigger <laughs> now. Joe, Joe, this is the year that you went political. Is that that's the sort of the premise of our of our conversation? Is that is right. that? I mean, I sort of always had you down as being when I, I remember first when I first saw you live. You were quite sort of silly. Silly is very important. But do you feel like you've become a political comedian this year? Yeah, yeah, I suppose inevitably I have. Um, I, I haven't quite decided uh, at what point that that happened. I, I, th- I think being queer immediately makes, it sort of forces a bit of po- politics into what you do because um, some people are against us. <laughs> and uh, so I think that, you know, that, that, that makes you a bit political. But yeah, I used to be a kind of, very sort of gentle natured well I've always, I'm still gentle natured but my material is to be gentle natured stuff about you know cheeses and things like that I see hosted shows like the Great British Sewing Bee and those sorts of things but this year I've just um been a bit a bit naughtier I suppose but like stepping back is it a consciousness to step back from the silly and the sewing bee in order to be political no, not really. Yeah. And I, I, I think I've, everything I've done is still silly. I, you know, I try and maintain all that. I've not, I've not been. None, none of what I've done has been serious. Uh, but I suppose there's been more sort of seriousness behind it. I suppose I've slightly just sort of lost patience with uh, a few bits and bobs to do with the way that um, public life is uh, and political life is being managed. And so my comedy is sort of. Uh, gone in that direction, but I suppose the, the kind of the building bots are all there. I don't know, really. I don't know. But I suppose actually, because I was thinking about this when you was. I remember when I first saw you, and you, you, a lot of your show was sort of sending silly emails to people, and you know, making up names and spoofs, and just sort of. But actually, that sort of drifted then into you sort of taking on. It was sort of small p political, but it was you taking on big corporations or companies, uh, and that which in itself is political. You know, there's, there's a sort of the, the the challenge between the individual, the consumer, the employee, and yeah. big corporations. 
I suppose, yeah, I suppose what's happened is it's the same stuff that I'm doing, but the targets have got bigger and maybe they've been slightly more impactful this year. But I, I suppose, you know, the Hugo Boss thing was last year, 2020, actually, was it? Uh, yeah, it was 2020. So the, the I changed my name by deed poll to Hugo Boss in a sort of protest against them uh, sending legal letters to companies using the, the word boss. And um, that really irked me. And, and so that was sort of political in a way, but it wasn't taking on a political party. It was taking on like a kind of big corporation. Yeah, uh, I've taken on Amazon. Uh, we loved hearing from their lawyers. They have very chilled out lawyers, as you can imagine. <laughs> uh, we um, we took on, yeah, this is, this is on my show, Joe Lice has got your back, which is a kind of consumer show. So I suppose, yeah, that is, as you say, soft P political. But then... Uh, I always sort of avoided talking about what I thought of politics. I'd maybe do sort of a side eye or whatever, but I never said I like this politician or I don't like this politician or this party because I, and I still believe this, I, I'm just one man who isn't, hasn't studied politics. I don't know uh, all the ins and outs of the political world. I can only talk from my experience and I would never want to tell someone how to vote or how to think even about um, uh, what they what about politics, and so I never I just sort of never wandered into that area. I was also scared, I suppose, because wh whenever you give an opinion in this area, you are um, you know you're jumped on by people that disagree with you, or you're jumped on by people who agree with you, and they sort of try and make more of a deal out of you than than needs to be. So I was just sort of scared of it, and I think actually, yeah, I sort of lost patience and felt like actually there are so many targets that. I wanted to um, to pick on and and felt personally affronted by some of the way that politicians uh, some politicians have behaved that I thought why not you know and you, let's you go for it. well we'll talk about how how the it got more and more political as the year went on but let's go back to you mentioned Joe Lice has got your back which I'd sort of describe as a sort of sweary watchdog is that a fair well, it's only recently, uh, it was on uh, at eight o'clock, the previous series, so there was no swears allowed, but it was a sort of camp watchdog, I would say, <laughs> camp with, watchdog. with stupid kind of stunts and pranks, but the pranks were always on companies or their CEOs. And it was taking on real life light watchdog, taking on real life people's problems and try to get them sort yeah. of... So let's take... Let's, uh, let, yeah. Which is how you... Let's take a listen to this. This is how you ended up giving evidence in April to the Lords Commission... Uh, Lords Committee on the Ford Act 2006 and digital fraud. Uh, let's take a listen. Do you think part of the problem is that the scamsters aren't afraid of being prosecuted? Joe, if you could maybe answer that. Yes, of course, uh, Viscount. I don't know if I've ever met a Viscount before. Well, that's, <laughs> that's very thrilling for you. I'm so pleased. <laughs> Yes, hello, first this morning. Yeah. And it went on and on. And then you had this exchange about a campaign <laughs> that you'd led against a bank who wouldn't help someone who'd been the victim of fraudsters. The, the way that we approached it, I don't think any, anyone else w would do it. You know, I don't think, why would somebody uh, pretend to be the head of a bank uh, for that long and I mean and then tweet I think I tweeted I've got a smelly bum bum which was the time <laughs> but at that point that was when the account started to get red flagged yeah. so just explain explain first of all that what, um, what it was like how it to be giving evidence to the house of lords I thought it was mad I thought it was really bizarre that I was in front of these people giving evidence to and the reports come out uh, uh I think last month it came out and I'm quoted quite heavily in this report from the House of Lords, which is really, I mean, it's given me a far bigger head than I should have. But um, it's its cool that they approached, I suppose, because I do host a show about consumer rights and I do have some knowledge in that area. And they had my brilliant producer on, Michelle Cox, who is the kind of journalistic, um, I say kind of, she's amazing. And she, she kind of runs the journalistic team on the show. And so she gave a real kind of depth and, and um, understanding and she works across Watchdog and Rogue Traders and all these programs. So she really knows her stuff. But I have done three and a bit series of it now. So I do have a bit of understanding of the sort of things that come up more regularly. And and so uh, I suppose they wanted to hear a little bit from me and maybe they thought it might be a laugh. And I thought it'd be funny to uh, talk about the smelly bum bum incident. Uh, so explain which, what that by was. the way, works. Well, exactly. And I, suppose, and I suppose that's probably, you know, the reason the peers are interested because 
it's a sign that the only way you can get anything done, you know, is it, I can't remember, was the woman lost, lost £8,000 to forces the bank uh, wouldn't pay out. Yeah. And then you, it was only you doing this, you, know, you can explain the stunt that you did, that actually brought about change. And, you know, peers, MPs yeah. would argue, you shouldn't have to, not everyone should have to go to Joe Lysett to sort out these sorts of things. Well, exactly, yeah. I mean, what what happened there was it was a, a woman who had an account with NatWest, which are owned by the Royal Bank of Scotland. And I think I think it was about eight grand. And she um, uh, she was scammed out of eight grand, basically. And it was a very sophisticated scam. What they do is they ring you and it looks like they're calling from the NatWest number. They say, oh, search the number that we've, um, we're have we ringing you on. You'll see that it's NatWest and we can text you from that number. And they can basically do everything. And so she believed it to be true. She moved money into accounts because she'd been told that she was being hacked. And she lost it, just completely went. And the bank said, essentially said to her, oh, well, it's not up to us. We, we can't stop if other people pretend tend to be us as we can't stop that from happening and I thought oh that's an interesting thing to say so I um I noticed that um the current CEO of RBS who's since um moved on was wasn't on Twitter so I set up a Twitter account for him and just kept it tweeting the sort of banal stuff that you would expect from an RBS CEO to be tweeting you know, our profits are great all that stuff and retweeting that west and just being very kind of safe and CEO like and then gradually started to go more and more crackers ending with a tweet saying yeah i've got a smelly bum bum which ended up as a kind of um across the pages of the metro i remember saying <laughs> rbs boss loses his mind and tweets i've got a smelly bum bum so then then they were forced to go like, oh no that's not him and it, and, and it sort of illustrated the point and then once we'd got their attention we said what are you gonna do about this woman's money and they refunded it in full and she got a call from his office and yeah it was one of, it was in the first series of my show and it was one of the sort of first kind of tastes of real victory on the show and i remember the day and I remember ringing uh, Claire who'd got the um got the money back and uh, after she'd been sort of informed by it and she was delighted and um yeah it, so it's it, it the show has the, the show has got back millions to consumers over the Amazing. last three series and I'm very very proud of it and I'm proud that it's the show that's got my name in it absolutely um so yes yeah, so it's um it's it's a lot of work but it's definitely worth it so let's fast forward to this. That's sort of small P political taking on corporations. But let's fast forward to September this year. Laura Koonsberg launches a shiny new serious Sunday morning political programme. And she's she landed a bit of a coup just ahead of the uh, naming of the new Prime Minister. She got an interview with both Liz Trust and Rishi Sunak. You said earlier that I'm not left or right. I'm actually, I know that there's been criticism in the, uh, the mail on Sunday today about lefty, liberal, wokey comedians on the BBC. I'm actually very right-wing, and I loved it. I thought she was very clear. She gave great, clear answers. I know exactly what she's up to. You know exactly what's going to happen. I think you're reassured, I'm reassured. Are you reassured? Well, Emily Thornbury. So, <laughs> so that was you after the, uh, the Liz Truss interview. And then this after the interview with Rishi Sunak. Well, it was nice to hear from Rishi Sunak. He's not going to be Prime Minister, so you may as well have interviewed Peter Andre. So now Peter Andre's Prime Minister, uh, Joe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I got that call wrong. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. so, so explain, you did, I mean, this was probably the, the most on-the-nose political thing you did. You go on the, the relaunched BBC flagship political show. Uh, at the end of Liz Truss's interview, you clap and whoop and cheer uh, and then pretend to be very right-wing. And before you know it, you're on, on the front of the Daily Mail. <laughs> yeah, yeah, when you put it like that... It's a bit of a silly old year, hasn't it? Um, yeah, I, uh, I'm i a huge fan of Laura's and I was really honoured to be asked on it, but I was a little bit surprised because I did think, why? Uh, why have you got me? And I, I spoke to her the night before and uh, kind of, because the show hadn't happened before, so I wanted to get an idea of the, kind of the geography of the studio and when she would be referring to me because I was a bit nervous about the fact that I'd been told by the producers that oh, you're going to be on at the same time as Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak. And this had all sort of been in, they told me about it a couple of days before. And in fact, I I believe I rang you to get your advice on how to, how to yeah, go about not that, it. Um, to be and, clear, I did not advise that you announced you were very right wing and, and clap and woo. No, you didn't advise that. You gave me very sound <laughs> advice, which was to sort of be myself and also, you know, gave me a bit of context on Liz Truss, which I hadn't had before. And um, yeah, so uh, I am... Um, I kind of decided on the way there 
that uh, I would do what I do on Twitter, which is to be sarcastic. And I didn't think it would be that remarkable a thing. I, you know, it's it's something I've done lots of before. It's not, um, sarcasm is not that smart a thing. It's the lowest <laughs> form of wit, they say. I know, it's, it's, you know it's sometimes just... it's very funny. Well, yeah. Some of us have built a career uh, it's, on it. <laughs> yeah, well, likewise, yeah. So, um, but I didn't think it was particularly remarkable. I just thought it was just an, uh, you know, a, 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 an easy enough way for me to play it. And um, and I spe- it's, for some reason, a little bit of light sarcasm seemed to cheese off quite a lot of people. Um, <laughs> did you ever hear including from... Including the Daily Mail. Did you ever hear from, from Liz Truss's people? I know we spoke no, to you straight not. afterwards, but you never heard... No, no, she won't, because um, you go to this sort of weird breakfast after you go on a Laura Koonsberg show where you sort of sit with everyone, but Liz Truss was not in attendance. I noticed where she was, but um, yeah, Liz Truss left immediately. I think you can see her like clambering from the chair the minute <laughs> the interview ends, trying to get her microphone off. So I think she was ready to ready to um, get out of the building as fast as possible. So no, never met her, never had any contact with her, and I doubt I ever will, but... Um, I don't you know. know. When I you're thought... both in the jungle together, I think that, you know, you'll you're bond. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Can you imagine? Oh, please. If I ever, if you ever see that I'm doing the jungle, please um, just text me, Matt, and just say, is everything okay? <laughs> you okay, hun? Um, you okay? You were right, though. I mean, ultimately, you were taking the mic being sarcastic with his trust, but, you know, she crashed in bird in, what, a month? Just over. Yeah, yeah. Well... I wasn't to know that. No one was to know that. <laughs> like no one could predict like how mad she'd be. But um, it, it, I think it's a thing that happens, isn't it? When you have a political party that's been in power for so long that by its very nature, it starts to kind of lose the kind of top talent because I suppose the the, the thing that gets them elected then get you know, kind of uh, gets compromised and the, the politician that gets them elected gets compromised and has to go. And then you end up with sort of the next best talented one and then they have to go and then it starts to go lower and lower and you end up with the situation exactly you end up the situation we're at now and And that's i think just sort of the natural you know it's the natural uh circle of life of politics but uh, i think uh, it's the fact that we're all sort of expected to take someone like her seriously and go oh no she's got some serious points one of my favorite things recent things to do is to listen to old right-wing podcasts from around that time (laughs) and like Listening to the Spectator podcast from the week when Quasi did his budget and they're all talking about how brilliant it is and they should go further. It's so delicious to listen to it now <laughs> in, with what we know now. It's wonderful. I and, really recommend that. And because, like you said, if you if you kick one side, everyone assumes you're on the other side. Do you have the Labour Party phoning you up and saying, do you want to stand to be an LMP in the next election? No. I, um, I noticed that Keir Starmer referred to me as somebody in the House of Commons and then completely butchered what I'd done with the uh, David Beckham stunt. That was funny. Um, no, I don't have any allegiance to any party. I, As I say, I would never tell anyone what to vote for, who to vote for. And currently, I, I don't know who I'd vote for, actually. I don't know uh, if, if there was an election tomorrow. I'd have to have a look at it and work it out. But um, I don't, you know, no, no political party entirely speaks to my views and what I feel like is right for the country, but also because my views change all the time yeah. and they contradict each other. And I think it's really hard to have a political, a clear political viewpoint on anything because there's there are valid arguments on lots of things on both sides. But I do think things like human rights and uh, the killing of gay people and whatever, I do sort of draw the line at that. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll all come on and talk about David Beckham. Would you ever become an MP? No. Ugh. You're good at public speaking. You? You're good at get, you know, sorting people's problems out. Yes, but like they, they I, I just think it's, um, I just think it's a really thankless job. I do. I think I admire a lot of MPs for doing it, but I don't. I can't be bothered, basically, Matt. <laughs> I can't be bothered. <laughs> that's a good. That's a good straight answer, which is why you make a terrible politician, Joe. Let's yes. let's go. Uh, he- heavy hitter MP in waiting. Yes, Joe Lysett. Yes. Yes, definitely. I think we'd all vote. I'm running. Uh, I'm running for UKIP, just for a laugh. <laughs> they could. They could do with a bit of a boost in in um, in uh, publicity. So, yeah. and I I suspect <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty confident you've definitely got yellow and purple a yellow and purple shirt 
in their party oh, colours. Certainly, I'm sure I've got one around somewhere. They would yeah, definitely take off. Uh, right, let's turn, let's talk about Qatar. You're sort of the third big plank of your 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 emergence into uh, a political uh, comedian. Uh, this was you <laughs> challenging David Beckham to end his ambassadorship for the Qatari World Cup, uh, threatening to shed ten thousand pounds. Let's take a quick listen. You've always talked about the power of football as a force for good, which suggests to me that you've never seen West Brom. But generally, I agree. So with that in mind, I'm giving you a choice. If you end your relationship with Qatar, I'll donate this 10 grand of my own money, that's a grand for every million you're reportedly getting, to charities that support queer people in football. However, if you do not, at midday next Sunday, I will throw this money into a shredder just before the opening ceremony of the World Cup and stream it live on a website I've registered called benderslikebeckham.com. Not just the money, but also your status as a gay icon will be shredded. Now, I remember in the, in the heart of all this, I messaged you and said uh, that people complaining about the money, uh, which has brought so much publicity. Most most charities mm. would spend that meeting on uh, spend that money on booking a meeting room. Because I actually thought you yeah. were going to shred the money. I just thought that 10 grand for the amount of publicity you got was... was really, of course, you didn't. You gave the money to the charities anyway. Do you... Yeah. Did, was it a success, do you think, given that you didn't actually persuade David Beckham to, to do anything? No, I don't think it was a success. And not in, you know, when we do things on Got Your Back, we want some sort of movement. Uh, we want some um, money back or whatever it is. And so, so in that way, no, it wasn't. I think I was expecting a little bit of press. I thought there'd be some local, like UK-based press and a bit of interest. I wasn't expecting it to go global in the way that it did. I mean, the, there were news stories multiple in America and Indonesia and uh, Brazil and Netherlands. I mean, it was all over the world. And uh, I can't remember the name of the publication, but there's, there's a publication that estimated that the amount of uh, press generated was uh, in the region of worth about two point eight million pounds in, <laughs> in, uh, in 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 you know if I wanted to get that amount with advertising or whatever so so in that way it was a success and I, I think I did get my point across I think I got people talking about it in a way that maybe they wouldn't have done before which is good which is good but um, we can talk as as much as we like but actually uh, there's a real problem in qatar and with a lot of other countries by the way it's not just qatar but i you know you have to kind of pick your battles and at the minute there's this um focus on qatar with the world cup and i thought uh, uh, that would be the perfect thing to disrupt and to kind of make uh, a bit of a, a splash about i suppose so yeah I, I always knew that i would never hear from david beckham somebody who um, i'm trying to remember who it was who said it to me but they were saying that like he said i was trying to get hold of his number that week and just see if i could just ring him and uh, everyone that i spoke to basically said that he's one of those sort of the people certain people get so famous that they sort of become like lizard people and it's actually <laughs> they don't have a number they're just sort of this sort of they don't have a phone yeah, yeah. thing you know they just have people that nearby who like don't have the you know who hold a phone for them and all that and so i never i, I kind of knew i would never hear from him um but but he was a sort of uh, a perfect kind of uh emblem i suppose of the way that a lot of brands particularly and a lot of institutions sort of pretend to be um allies of the lgbt community until it's inconvenient for them and i would i would add the the fa into that group actually i mean i, I heard i had some conversation with the fa and they had sort of directed me to their um their statement about the one love armband and how you know proud they were of all that well we know where we got to with that don't we you know it's and and and, and i don't I, I, i'm loath to sort of um and i won't sort of a, a attack any of the footballers and all of that because actually they might never get to do a World Cup again and it's their careers and I I think f fair play to them. They're in a really tricky situation and I'm sure they've all got individual opinions on it. But I felt that David Beckham, he isn't being paid by FIFA or the World Cup. He's being paid by Qatar, allegedly. Uh, that's been backed up by Gary Neville who said it on a Guardian podcast. So I'm fairly sure that's what's been happening. And, and I think actually if you're being paid by the country... And the country has those rules you should uh you, if you're saying come to qatar it's a brilliant place you should be able to defend why why you know like what what why it's good to come to qatar if you're an lgbt person why it's safe but nobody can because it's not safe and in my program that's on thursday we speak to the first openly gay qatari who 
He makes the very good point, which is it might be uh, one thing that it's illegal to be gay and that the, the state will kind of prosecute or, or potentially kill you if you're Muslim. Uh, they haven't actually ever um, used the death penalty on a gay person in Qatar thus far, but it is part of their legislation. But actually the reality of being gay just on a ground level in Qatar is impossible. I mean, um, he's called Dr. Nasser Mohammed, who is the first openly gay um, Qatari. He now lives in America and has constant threats against him. Um, it's not safe to be, you know, he, he'll never see his family and his friends again because of who he is, literally because of how he was born and who he, who he chooses yeah. to, not even chooses, who, how he was born to love, you know. And so... Um, uh, my issue is, is that like if I was born in Qatar, I would not be allowed to be me, essentially. And so it's a sort of selfish thing of going, I'm sticking up for people like me and I don't want to be prosecuted wherever I go uh, just for being me. So that, that's it, really. That's the, that's the point I'm trying to make. And I think I made it. But I ultimately would like to see a world where no um, LGBT person is um uh, has any inequality yeah. as a result of who they are but in and you know before we get there at least maybe people not taking money from uh from countries like that so it's called joe lycett versus david beckham and got your back christmas special it's channel four nine o'clock this thursday and so what does 2023 hold in store for you are you going to get even more but who, who's your next target for next year more political? Uh, I haven't. I haven't got like any. You know, I don't have a, a list, list of targets. <laughs> I mean, I do. I do have things that I would really like to take on. And I think the biggest sort of injustice that has happened in our um, in our in our lifetimes really is Grenfell and the way that that's been handled. I think that there's still a complete void of um, justice, a complete lack of justice. Um, for, for the victims of Grenfell. But th things like that, you know, you have to be very careful about not sort of trying to swoop in and and, and, and get involved in something that you don't know a lot about and you don't, uh, and you might not help and you might make worse. So if, if I was confident that I had a good idea that I think could help there, I, I would absolutely do it. But uh, thus far, I've not come up with it. So it might be something around the Grenfell thing, but uh, it might be, you know, a lot of smaller things that are, like we do on, our, on Got Your Back. And on the Christmas special, we deal with, a few like tiny little things that one which i loved a guy um in <laughs> he he bought as liz trust became prime minister he bought i think 500 he designed 500 liz trust dog toys which didn't even arrive <laughs> before she was <laughs> she was ousted and now he's got a bathtub full of liz trust dog toys so we try and shift. solve that problem for him we can't shift it yeah um so uh, I bought a few off him because I think they're hilarious. But um, a good, funny so Christmas yeah, um, it's a good Christmas present. Yeah. What, so, I, so little things really. Your your plans for Christmas? Do you go big on Christmas? I'll, no, I'll be at home with mum and dad and my sister and her fiance, and it'll be very quiet for me. It's been a busy year. I'm going to go off grid for a bit. Well, we look forward to coming back on grid uh, next year. Joe, it's been lovely to speak to you. Um, so nice before. to speak. Have a Merry Christmas. Happy Merry Christmas, exactly. We are now allowed to do that because there's only two weeks to go. Uh, Merry Christmas yeah. to you, Joe Lysett. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, that's all we've got time for on today's episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. And you can listen via the Times Radio app. Catch me Monday to Friday, 10 to 1, live on Times Radio. And if you want to come on and play the hugely popular quiz, can you get to number 10? Email me your details, matt.chorley at times.radio, and we'll get you on very soon. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. 
Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A malibu.com code GLOW.